0: we thank you that indeed your love is so great. It's beyond measure. Lord, we are so grateful today to be participants in the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that the reality of that would sink deep into our hearts and that we would know that no matter what, we are loved by you. Lord, I thank you Lord, as we open up your word now, I pray that God you would reveal to it, reveal it to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Children, sixth grade and below, you're welcome to go with Miss Kathy and your teachers to your place of study. If you're new here and would like for your child to go, hopefully they've already been introduced and know directions, but if not, just Follow the crowds, and or you can go with them and help sign them in. And again, welcome to Fullness, everyone. If you're new, we're so glad that you're here. In a minute, you'll get some opportunities for service that we have. But I just want to say a couple of things. One, this is what we do here. This is we we worship God through song through action, through prayer. We minister to one another, pray for one another. We believe the body of Christ does that, and we open up God's Word together to study and to let it reveal to us. We're a church who believes fully in embracing the Spirit of God, the person of the Spirit of God, and the truth of God, God's Word, 100% of both. And so we try and do that Uh, On Sunday morning, over a period of time, so that we can receive the fullness of Christ and walk in the fullness of God and the fullness of the Spirit uh, together. If you'd like to know more about fullness, if you're new to us, maybe this is your first time here, but you'd still like to know more, we have a lunch right after church today downstairs, uh, and we would invite you to come. You, You may not have signed up, that's okay, we'll have enough food for you. If you'd like to participate with that and come downstairs, Learn more about fullness. Maybe this is the place where God would have you. We invite you to join us downstairs, right after, right after the service. Turn in your Bibles to Mark, the end of Mark, um, and buckle up. We've got a lot, a lot to cover this morning. In what I'd like to do, it's a little unusual. We we're closing out a, a series called Prepare. We start the first of each year with a time of prayer and fasting, um, 21 days during the month of January, and I usually do a sermon series that goes along with that. This year we called it Prepare. And the reason we called it Prepare is because uh, we believe that God's model for how His kingdom works is something like this. We prepare, we get ready, and then when God moves, we participate with Him that the world's model looks something more like this. We predict what the future holds, and then we plan to meet the prediction. The problem with the world's model of predicting and planning, and again, I'm not, I'm not downplaying planning. I'm a big planner myself. The problem with it is, if your prediction is off, then all your planning is for naught. Can anyone say snow day <laughs> this week? You know, I mean, really. We predict this is going to happen, and, you know, if you're like me, you're like, you woke up ready for nothing. (laughs) Your prediction's off. Your planning is off. We see that in the world. But God's call in our lives is more of, prepare, get ready. I'm going to move. Blessed are those who wait on me. The problem sometimes with waiting is that people mistake waiting for doing nothing. Somebody should say amen. Some people just mistake waiting for doing nothing. Okay, I God is sovereign. I need to just sit here on my rump, and when God moves, then I'll jump up and I'll 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 go participate with him. Well, that's not God's that's not his idea of waiting at all. God's idea of waiting is we are in a constant state of preparation, so that when the time comes, we're ready to go. You know, I'm trying to think of different models, but one of the ones that came to me this week uh, as I was talking to my brother, and he's got two um, two of his children who are going in the military. They, Military, the soldiers, they prepare all the time so that when the battle comes, they're ready. And if you're not ready, pre- uh, think about the football game today. Did you all know there's a game? You may have heard a rumor that there's a game tonight. You spend so much more time in preparation than you do in actually playing the game. God is calling for us to be ready, to prepare. And over the last weeks, we've looked at this passage from Ephesians, which has helped us to to understand that we are to be a people who are fully awake, that the danger is that we are Tempted to fall asleep, we become lethargic, we don't do anything, but God is calling us to wake up, to be careful how we live, not as unwise, but as wise, doing what? Make the most of every opportunity, redeem the time, don't waste time because the days are evil. The implication being that wasting time opens the door to evilness creeping into your life. Again, can anybody say amen? I mean, when you are lethargic, when you're not on watch, when you are off your guard is when you are open to the enemy creeping in. When do robbers come? According to the parable, in the night when we're asleep. The enemy comes. When does he sow seeds of um, tares in the field? Thank you for those who are helping me. He does it in the night. He does not when we're asleep, when we're not alert, when we're not vigilant. Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. How do we understand the Lord's will? Well, we understand the Lord's will when we work in conjunction with the person of the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit of God. We need to stay awake. We need to stay alert. We need to stay prepared. We saw a couple of weeks ago how Jesus gives the parable of the, the ten bridesmaids. And what does it mean to be prepared? What does it look like to be prepared? Last week, my brother did a great job of preaching out of the book of Titus on be prepared for good works. Be prepared to do what God has called us to do. So, Excuse me, I'm getting all choked up. I'm so excited about this sermon. Uh, How do we get prepared? Then in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at participating, participating with God in worship, participating with God in evangelism, participating with God in prayer, participating with God in service. How do we participate uh, in this this world? So get excited. It's going to be a great series. Today I want to do something unusual, but I like the idea, and so I hope you will as well. I would like to preach the whole end of the book of Mark. that's so why I said to buckle up. In other words, what I'd like to do, sometimes, you know, you've heard that phrase, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes when you get in the Gospels and you look at one account and then another account and then another account, you look at the stories that have to do with Jesus or what's going on. And at times you don't take a step back and say, wait, there is a there is something going on here. God is trying to say something the way he is Ordained for Mark to put this gospel together. And really, Mark, of all the gospels to me, has these incidents of story and upon story with things in the middle that go around the story and they have to do with themes. And sometimes we get so caught up in just one story, we don't see the forest. So, what I want to do is I want to back up from Mark 13 to the end of Mark and just run it through for you to. To look at what I believe Mark is trying to communicate to those of us who are reading. And remember, Mark's gospel is probably given to him by Peter. That's what tradition holds, that Peter is the one letting Mark uh, know the story and uh, has been dictating to him this gospel. And so the failures of Peter in this are Peter's own words about his hearing Jesus but not really hearing him. And so... We're, we're doing this in the, in the idea of preparation. I think it'll be clear as we go along. I hope so. In Mark 13, so let's back up. In Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life, on Sunday what happened? Hello? What happened on the Sunday? No, no, the Sunday before he rose from the dead. You're way ahead of me, Dottie. Palm Sunday, thank you. Jesus, Wow, well, we went straight to it. He's dead and rose from the dead. Yes, he's going to rise from the dead, but let's back up a little bit. On Palm Sunday, he comes into the city of Jerusalem on the donkey, the triumphal entry. Um, on Monday, he goes back into Jerusalem. On his way back into Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree that is bearing no figs, like it should. And so he curses that fig tree. He goes on into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple, and he casts the money changers out of the temple. By the way, you cannot, you cannot disconnect the fig tree from the money changers. You understand? This is the way Mark is flowing here. He's letting us see the conjunction between the two. And I'll tell you why I know this, because on the next day, Tuesday, Jesus, he leaves Jerusalem. He goes back into Jerusalem. On the way back into Jerusalem... His followers see the fig tree, and they say, hey, that fig tree you cursed yesterday, is dead. And Jesus teaches about the fig tree not bearing fruit. He goes back in, um, teaches in the, by the way, even the Pharisees recognize, wait, this teaching on the fig tree, he's talking about us. And they're totally offended at it. They, may, his followers may not make all the connections, but the religious leaders know he's talking about how this system that was supposed to be fruitful for God is not being fruitful, and God has, is bringing it down. And if that were not clear enough, on the way out, after he's gone in, he's stirred up some things, he's had some confrontation with the religious leaders, on the way out, his disciples say, isn't this building magnificent? Look at these stones. These are unbelievable. And if you think about it, at the time, it was unbelievable. Even now, it's unbelievable. Um, Robin Shannon and I just went there. I know I've told you this 40 times over the past two months, but I'm going to keep saying it because it was fun. Um, But the stones in the wall are so big, we don't even understand how they got placed there, even now. There are all sorts of theories about how they got moved, but for that time, you're looking at these stones thinking, it's incredible. And that's what the Jesus followers are saying. Look at these stones. Look at this building. Isn't this unbelievable? And Jesus says to his followers, hey, not one of these stones is going to... See these walls? Not one of them is going to be left. Not one stone is going to be on top of another. Now, again, I hope you understand, it doesn't take great insight to see these connections of the fig tree and the money changers and the temple and the calling down of a religious system that is not fruitful. Jesus they leave, They leave, and they go out to the Mount of Olives, and they look back at the city of Jerusalem. And so I took this picture when I was with Robin Shannon. We're looking back. We're on the Mount of Olives. We're looking back at the city of Jerusalem. And where the gold dome is, that's the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim structure now, but that's where the temple stood. The temple was 150 feet high, and even, even now you look back at The Temple Mount, which is the wall, and see all the trees around the the Dome of the Rock? That entire thing was the temple grounds, the Temple Mount. So when they get to the Mount of Olives, his, his followers look back, and I think in a sense they panic a little bit. They've been thinking about it as they're walking out of Jerusalem. They get back on the Mount of Olives, they look back at this incredible temple that You know, there were no other high-rise buildings. There were no other. I mean, it was stark, amazing compared to the rest. And they say to Jesus, "When is this going to happen?" They're they're concerned about when is this. When is the temple and the walls and everything that when is this going to come down? Jesus then enters into a discussion with with them, which is called and it's, it's recorded in Mark 13, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because he was on the Mount of Olives, right? He's, in this discourse, this teaching that he gives them is very uh, controversial in this sense. He is talking about the temple being destroyed, but at the same time, he mixes in a discussion about the end of time, about his own return about when he's coming back. And it's clear if you read Mark 13, and I've taught on Mark 13, I'm not going to go through it again today, but it's clear on Mark 13, or in it, that there's part of it that has to do with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, happens in 70 A.D., and it happens just like Jesus says it's going to happen, and the end of time, when he returns. There, there are clearly indications, I believe, in Mark 13... he's talking about these two separate events. The problem is there are ones in between that you don't know. Is this about the temple or is this about the end of time? Is this about when he returns or is this about when the temple is destroyed? And by the way, I think that's part of the nature of prophetic literature sometimes. It can have multiple meanings. It can have multiple. If you go back to Daniel and apocryphal literature, there's clearly some things that have to do with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, but there are also clearly some things that have to do with the end of time. So it could mean that and this at the same time. And we, at times, are not clear. Have I totally confused the situation? So that's part of the nature of prophetic literature, and that's what happens. Because there are still some people who say all of Mark 13 happened at the destruction of the temple. They have a theological name. We're not going to go into it. But then there are others who say, no, really, he's not talking about the temple at all. He's talking about his return. I think they're both blowing air. I think it's clear that they bo- he, there's the both-and going on at the same time, the destruction of the temple and his return. Here's the point, though. When he starts this discussion, the Olivet Discourse, the end of time, the destruction of the temple, he says this, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one does what? Deceives you. Watch out. Be alert. Be vigilant. Be prepared so that no one deceives you. He then goes through the whole Olivet Discourse, and at the end of it, he says, "'Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping.'" What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. So, he's saying to them in the middle of this discourse, now remember, this is Tuesday. He's going to die on Friday, be resurrected, Dottie when? Sunday. Sunday, Dottie's gone on to other things. He's going to be raised on Sunday. (laughs) He's going to resurrect us. So this is just on Tuesday of Holy Week. He's saying to them, watch, be alert, be prepared. How long before they're no longer watching, alert, and prepared? Hours. (laughs) They don't make it through the day. They definitely don't make it through Thursday or Friday or Saturday, really, or even Sunday, Resurrection Day, when they kind of wake back up. The rest of Mark, he basically shows their failure to stay alert. All the accounts from here on out, or these guys, and this is Peter, I think, giving this to Mark, saying we couldn't even stay alert for a day, much less two days, much less three days. Here, here let me just run through the accounts. The next thing you know, it's that night, and it's in the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, obviously, Simon doesn't still have leprosy or they wouldn't be in his home. Uh, but he either was someone who was healed. Some people, uh, some people think Simon the leper was the brother of Lazarus. Uh, a lot of speculation. Some people say he was a pot. We don't know who he was. But he's in his home, and the disciples are there. And a woman comes in who's unidentified in Mark with an expensive jar of perfume. And she breaks the expensive jar and... Anoints Jesus' head, to which his followers are offended. We could have sold this. Pragmatists that they are, we could have fed the poor. I, I, you know, I've got some issues with this in that I doubt they really cared about the poor. They're just, I, I, I think they've lost the view. And Jesus said, Listen, This is my, what she's doing is an act of worship. She is preparing my body for burial. She is alert. She's hearing from the Spirit. She's awake. And as a matter of fact, what she's done, whenever people talk about faith in this instance, they're going to talk about her, not you. You get it? I mean, he's saying, of the people in this room, She's the one who's watching. She's the one who's alert. She's the one who's preparing. She's the one who's hearing from the Spirit, not you guys. The poor will always be with you. And he's not downplaying the poor, please. Jesus cared about the poor. He spoke to us clearly about it. But he's saying in this instance, you have lost sight. You've lost your your view. She's the one. Moving forward. Wednesday is a silent day. There's nothing really recorded that Jesus did on Wednesday. Most people feel like it's been a rough weekend. He's resting for what's coming up. Thursday, we have the Lord's Supper. We have the final the final supper where he prophesies that one of the 12 will not, only not watch, but will actively betray him. By the way, Tuesday night, Judas has already sold him out. And now Thursday night, he's having this dinner with his followers. And they're very concerned because they, they're not even sure they're not the one. You know what I mean? They're, they're so weak in some senses. They're like, well, you know, it could be me. Who's it going to be? I hope he doesn't say me. Jesus leaves there, and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, which you know about. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's preparing He's getting ready for what's coming up. He's getting ready for the crucifixion, for his trial, crucifixion, his death, everything that he's getting ready to do. He's praying about that. He says to his followers, stay here and what? Keep watch. He's he's coming back to this watch theme. Stay here and keep watch. Now again, we were just in the Garden of Gethsemane, weren't we, guys, and this is what it looks like now, the garden. And by the way, there are trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that are 3,000 years old, which means they were there when Jesus and the disciples were there. And according to tradition, this is the rock that he knelt at and prayed. We, we have no idea if that's true, but it looks like a good kneeling rock to me, for all I know. And by the way, as in everything in Israel right now, there is a church built right there. Um, so it's, it's everywhere. Uh, Except the garden is pretty well, pretty uh, still a garden. So he says to his followers, stay here and keep watch. He goes away and prays. He comes back. What happened? You know, they're asleep. They can't even stay, keep focused for an hour. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Now, again, I think this is incredible because, if again, Peter is the one dictating this to Mark. He's allowing his own name to be the one called out in his failure. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus has already told Peter that he's gonna deny him. He's already said, You're gonna, when the time comes, you're gonna fall away. You're gonna flee. And now he's saying, keep watch. He's not only trying to get himself prepared. I think he's trying to get Peter, James, John, and the followers prepared. But they don't know. They can't keep watch. They can't. They're just exhausted. They can't keep moving forward, so they fall asleep. As you know, after Jesus prays in the garden, he is then arrested. He goes the next day to the trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, He is crucified. He He is killed. Of his followers... None of them. Maybe John comes to the crucifixion, we know, because Jesus from the cross says, Behold your son, behold your mother. But really, at the trial, through it all, where are the watch guys? The watch guys have quit watching and have fled in a matter of days. The Olivet Discourse, to me, is really sobering. You know, because we say, you know... If I could have just been with Jesus, if I could have just seen the miracles of Jesus, if I could have just been there, I would be so much stronger. I, my faith would be so built up. I could stand for No, you can't. You can't. Even his own guys who've been with him for years and seen it all, when, the, when it comes push time, when things get really hard, you may be saying, well, why is that the case? I, I think it's the case because in and of ourselves, our own strength, we do not have the ability to keep watch. And you may be saying, wait a minute, Pastor. How is this going to work then? Praise God he doesn't leave us there. Praise God he doesn't just abandon us to our own hopelessness and an inability to keep watch. And that's where the rest of Mark, comes in. Because on Sunday, Dottie, what happens? He rose from the dead. Thank you, Dottie. Now's the time. He rose from the dead. Jesus rises from the dead. The greatest demonstration of the power of God is when Jesus rose from the dead. We have that same power at work in our lives. And then these women come to the uh, tomb and are looking for Jesus, and they see a man in white in the tomb, sitting to the right, and the man says, it's an angel obviously, he says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. I like the way that Peter even added it. Go tell his disciples and even that loser Peter, uh, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The final verse of Mark says this, right after this. Trembling and bewildered, the women the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were so afraid. And Mark ends. By the way, I know there are verses in your Bible after this. But in most of your Bibles, there's a line and there's all these verses 9 through 20 that are in the book of Mark. Um, Most people believe that, I'm just going to comment on this quickly, most people believe this longer end of the book of Mark was added later. It was not part of the earliest manuscripts. Uh, Everything in verses 9 through 20, by the way, can be found in some other passage except for picking up snakes and drinking deadly poison. Everything else in this passage can be found somewhere else in the book of Mark. So what I would say to you is, read the end of Mark. It's awesome. Those last 11 verses are still great. I would not build a theology on snake handling and drinking poison. Other than that, it's, it's, you're solid. If you want to build it on those two, go ahead and tell Jesus I said hi when you get there. <laughs> so... Um, I'm sorry, I'm being cynical today. <laughs> it, it is obvious to most people that verse 8 wasn't where Mark was intended to end, I think. But that there was probably something else there. We just don't know what it was. And so, in uh, later manuscripts in the next 200 years, added the, the 11 verses, which can be found in other places. If you study the scripture very long, you learn that all of Mark is contained in the Gospels of Luke. And Matthew. Uh, and so Mark is most likely written first and became a source material for both Luke and Matthew. Even though Matthew was there, he uses it. And it's interesting that that the end of Matthew says this. Let me go back. Look at verses. Uh, don't be uh, alarmed. You're looking for Jesus. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you're going to find him. And then Matthew, I think, picks it up. Then the twelve, the eleven disciples went to Galilee. To the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They're still doubting, some of them. The watch guys are still doubting. Then Jesus came to them and said, and we're going to look at the Great Commission in a minute. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I don't think it's a huge stretch to, to say that what happens here at the end of Matthew could have been placed at the end of Mark. I, I really don't have any idea. But because Matthew uses so much of Mark's original material. Up until this point, and we just don't really know if the ending of Mark is what was intended like that, it's, it's that abrupt, or if there was more we don't have, I, I really can't speculate. But I, I do know this, I do believe this, that what Jesus is doing here at the end of Matthew flows out of this theme of the book of Mark, which is what? Keep watch. Stay alert. I, I'm, you couldn't stay alert here, but I've given you more. Stay alert. Keep watch. How do we stay alert? How do we prepare? How do we keep watch? And I think that what Jesus is giving us in the Great Commission are the guidelines to how do we stay prepared. Are you with me? I know I've taken a long time to get to this point. But here's my point. We are to be on watch. We are to be prepared. Preparing is not falling asleep. Preparing is not doing nothing. As a matter of fact, being prepared is the opposite of those things. Being prepared is doing what Jesus told us to do. And as we do and wait on the Lord in the sense of, I'm not going to do this out of my own strength. I'm going to do it out of the power of the Spirit who indwells me. We participate with God. Here are some points on this, just from the Great Commission. And and by the way, um, one of my favorite quotes from John Piper from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over, this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. You understand the point? While we prepare for the end of the age, what we're doing is missions. We're helping people come into a worship relationship with God. I'm going to move through these points. Let me just, I know I've spent a lot of time setting it up, but this is what's so critical, I believe, is that, Preparation involves us doing what God has told us to do. Just And what is that? Here it is. First point is give what you've been given. Give what you've been given. God doesn't call you to give away what you don't have. He doesn't call you to give away something He hasn't already given you. I I don't know if this truth strikes you, but... Some of us at times are trying to give away something we don't think we have or we don't have. I believe in God's economy, He calls us to give away what we've been given. If you're trying to give away something you haven't been given, then you're going to be depleted of it. You're not going to to give out of the grace of God, you're going to give out of some sort of legalistic thing. And so give what you've been given. What have you been given? Well, Jesus says this in the Great Commission, and all the rest of these points are going to have to do with this ending of Matthew. And again, I I, I went a long way around saying that I think the end of Matthew is connected in some form, at least in truth, to the end of Mark. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, look, I've, I've received all authority. And then he's going to command them. And the implication here to me is clear. I've been been given authority, and I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you this authority to go in my name. Now, I'll talk about this power dynamic in just a minute. The authority that we've been given by the power of the Spirit that indwells us. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. But apart from... Person of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about more on Wednesday nights as well. Think about this: once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Exactly what Cindy was prophesying earlier, what um, uh, Griffith was uh, praying about. We 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 weren't a people, but now we're a people. We've been given oneness, unity, and once we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're to give what we've been given. What have we been given? We've been given so many things. I'm just picking out one. One of the things we've been given is mercy. Jude says this, And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others. But do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. I could get stuck here and and be here all the rest of the day in Jude, this passage. But what is he basically saying? Look, we're snatching people out of the fire. Give me one more, one more, one more out of the fire. Why? Because it's the mercy of God that leads people to repentance. Show mercy. And while you do, by the way, don't let the sins that go on with them contaminate you. Here's the problem. We're so stinking sin-focused that we, we don't show mercy. We condemn sin in the church. Doesn't it sound like that? Doesn't, don't people more often hear from us? God hates homosexuals. God hates this person group. God hates that person group. And what are we doing? We're not showing mercy. We're showing condemnation. I'm not saying God doesn't hate sin. It's clear God hates sin. But what God loves more are people, so much so that He gave His only Son that He could die for us. That's how much God loves us, and He's calling for us to give what we've been given. What have you been given? Judgment? Praise God, no. So don't give it away. Don't give judgment away in the sense of don't judge. It's not our time. It will be, but it's not yet. Uh, That's a whole different sermon. But it's not now. Now give away what you've been given. The mercy of God. Piper goes on and says, Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. In other words, he's saying, it's not just the goal of missions, it's what fuels it. It's what makes it happen. You don't do missions on your own. This is where, um, look, I'm born and raised Baptist. First two verses we ever learned. John 3.16, Matthew the Great Commission. God loves you, therefore go. God loves you, therefore go. The problem with the therefore go is somebody always forgot to tell me all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus. In other words, he, he somebody stopped short when I was little of saying, you get to go in the power of God. You get to go in his mighty power. Don't just go. But go because you're a worshiping fool who's full of the Spirit. And that will fuel the mission part of your life. Preparation and going, being prepared, is understanding what we've been given. We've been given mercy. We've been given love. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, I'm going to move faster even. We teach, but this is really good, isn't it? (laughs) I think so. We teach what we've been taught. We teach what we've been taught. Jesus goes on and says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teach what what you've been taught. By the way, I think implicitly what this means is that we understand and follow the teachings of Jesus. Now, Again, I think that's more revolutionary than you're all excited about too often we teach things that Jesus never taught and give him credit to Jesus. You know what I mean? We say something, you know, here's what the Bible says. No, it doesn't. That's not what the Bible's saying. We need a better understanding of the Word of God. That's why we at Fullness, we're 100% of the Spirit and 100% of the Word. We want to hear the Word of God and teach the Word of God. We need to be careful about what the Word of God says. There's a movie uh, that came out a number of years ago called The Help. Uh, It was based on a book called The Help, and it's about Jackson, Mississippi, and this strenuous relationship between more of the the white elitist, and they're not even elitist in the sense of money, but they're elitist, and the people that work in their homes, the African-American population who care for their children and take care of their homes in the early 60s. And there's this one Bible quote in dislikeful person named hilly and it and the person who works for her and the person who works for her her son is trying to go to college and she needs a loan for her son to go to college and she comes to hilly and asks her if she would and it takes a lot of courage for her to even ask if she would could borrow the money for her son to go to college and Hilly's self-righteous answer is that, as a Christian, she is doing her maid a favor by saying no and teaching her to work for it herself. Her answer: Look, as a Christian, I, I could, I, I can't do it because it'd be teaching you not to work for it yourself. To the hardest working person in the house, by the way. We do this all the time with Scripture. We justify our own stuff by misunderstanding the Scripture. Here's a place to start. I'm running out of time, but can you give me some extra time a little bit this morning? I'm going to take it anyway, but thanks for your agreement. (laughs) Who is the Bible about? Who is the Bible? Now, you don't have to answer out loud. I know I've been asking for you to, but... Who is the Bible about? Is this about man or is this about God? How you answer that question will determine how your worldview. Short answer. It's about God. It's not about you. It's not about man. It's about God's interaction with man, but man is not the central character of the story. God is. Bob and he has this this book, uh, excuse me, seminar that I listened to a long time ago. It's called Cat and Dog Theology. Cat and Dog Theology. And it's based on this. Um, Let me see if I can remember. I wrote it down, but I'm not sure this is the exact. He says, with a dog, you pet a dog, you feed a dog, you shelter a dog, you love a dog. He looks at you and says, you must be God. For a cat... You pet a cat, you feed a cat, you shelter a cat, you love a cat, he looks at you and says, I must be God. (laughs) Is that not true? I hate cats. (laughs) Just thought I'd let you in on something. I'm not really a cat fan. I'd rather be God than serving one, right, the cat form, so to speak. That's us. We think of, we think we're God. We think we're the center person in this story. I was reading uh, Psalm 23 as part of my Bible reading just this past week, and it says this. Listen to this. We read this at funerals and we make us and the people around us, the center of even this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. His name's sake, not mine. Why does he do all of these things? Because he is God and it brings him glory. I mean I could just pick so many passages. Look at Ephesians. He he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Why? For the praise of his glorious grace. Why do we do good works? In the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give you glory. You're a good person. No. No. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's the point. We're going to give away what we've been given. What have we been given? We've been given love, mercy, the power of the Holy Spirit. What are we going to do? We're going to teach what we've been taught. But we better make sure that we understand that God is the center of the story and not us. So that we give away something that's life-giving in itself. If you give away a gospel that's you centered, that is death. That is legalism. It'll lead to a pit that people can't get out of. We need to give away what we've been, we need to teach what we've been taught. So we need to be prepared in this watchful state to receive, to hear, to let God reveal to us. Final point is this. We go in the power of his presence. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And then he says at the end, and surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What is he saying? You're going to go in my authority. I'm with you in power. Go. Acts 1.8, kind of a sister passage to this, but you will receive power. When? When? When when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. And I added the then, but it's implicit. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We do what we do in the power of God that indwells us. We can't do it any other way. You know, we, we are a church that fully embraces the Spirit of God. That's who we are. Why? Because I, I am fully convicted, fully, that God didn't save us just to go to heaven. That he saved us to be lights in this generation now. And how do we do it? We do it because his presence indwells us. The person of the Holy Spirit fills us. If we do it any other way, and my story is one of, I tried as stinking hard as I could to live the Christian life on my own. You can't do it. At some point, you'll reach the end of your natural rope. And sooner rather than later, I hope. So that you can be filled with, empowered with, flow with the person and work of the Spirit of God. If you want to know more about this, I want to encourage you strongly, strongly to come to Wednesday nights from here on out. Look, I know we're really busy. If I were to go up to any of you and say, hey, how are you doing? I'm busy. I'm really busy. I've got 20 things I'm doing. I understand we're all busy. But let me tell you this. You are not so busy that you can't receive the person and work of the Holy Spirit dwelling your life. If you want to get less frantic and less busy, let the Spirit of God guide you. Just, that's free. But do it by coming, I, one of the ways you can do it is by coming and learning more about how he works on Wednesday nights. We're going to, just six weeks. Not only that, if, let, let, let me take this away. Let's say you say, I can't eat, I can't come because I, I can't get dinner. We'll feed you dinner. You just got to let us know you're coming and we'll feed you dinner. You can sign up for it. Please come. Wednesday nights, Practicing the Power. If you want to know more about it, get the book by the same title. It's in the foyer. You can read it. we will hitting the highlights. All of that to say, we have to do what we do by the power of the Spirit. These These same disciples who couldn't keep watch for just a day or two or four days, they get empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they literally change the world. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Why? Did they just suddenly get brilliant on their own? Did they go to college? Did they study more? Did they learn more? What was the change? They got filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and power was on them and in them to the point that the Authorities, the trained, were amazed. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know. Maybe we should go back to the start of the gospel and talk about Jesus saving you and you getting filled with the Spirit because that is so critical. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts faith. By the way, he goes on and says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. The benediction I speak over us. It all has to do with this. What, what am I saying in this closing? I hope you've caught a little bit of what I'm trying to communicate. God is calling us to prepare. Preparation is not the absence of action. Preparation is receiving what he wants to give us. We have received all of these things. Give away what you've been given. Teach what you've been taught. And go in the power of his presence. And I'm telling you, when God moves, you'll be ready. When James and John were in the temple and the guy needed healing, they were ready. They didn't go there thinking, my plan is this. I'm going to go to the temple and heal this guy. They didn't predict this was going to happen. They went prepared, and when God said, they did. How awesome would it be to live your life like that? Continually ready, and then something happens. You're sensitive to the voice of God. Give, Give a cup of water in Jesus' name. Pray for someone. See someone get healed. See someone set free. See someone receive the gospel. That be so much more exciting than just saying, you know, I got saved and I got to go to church on Sunday mornings. That's what I got to do, you know, that's the deal. Not, so that I go to heaven and I'm not in trouble all the time. Live every moment of every day empowered by the power and presence of the Spirit of God. Lord, we thank you. We give you glory and we thank you for what you are doing and going to do on this earth. Lord, I. I thank you that in your sovereignty and your providence, you've chosen me. You've chosen us to do this. And Lord, we are so grateful. Lord, I pray that we would realize what we've been given and we give it away. That we would realize what, what the truth that you've imparted to us and we would share that truth with others. And Lord, I pray that we do it all in the power and presence of the Spirit of God who indwells us and fills us and directs us. In Jesus' name, amen. Scott? All right. We're going to take up an offering here in just a minute, Um, so you can go ahead and get your, your tithes and offerings ready here at